We are continuing our series, Don't Be a Pharisee. And we started off the series by saying that one of the, the war, only thing that the Pharisees got wrong is they got too zealous. They, their zeal overtook, and zeal, as it says on the video, is just an excitement and a motivation to, a commitment to something, and their commitment just got too much, and it turned into pride, as we talked about in the first week, it took, turned into exclusivity, and last week we talked about how an accidental Pharisee, as the term that we've been using, an accidental Pharisee will thin the herd that Jesus wanted to grow. And that is Jesus' heart. We saw Jesus was someone who would go out to people and invite everyone. He didn't have to be, meet a certain standard. He didn't have to be fit the mold. Everyone was welcome. Everyone could come. And so uh, if you missed last week, I really encourage you to go check it out. But this week, we're talking about legalism. If you haven't been a part of church for a long time, that word means nothing to you. If you've been a part of church for a long time, we know that basically a Pharisee and a legalist kind of go hand in hand. And this morning what we're going to do, we're going to look at a couple stories where this legalistic ideal, this legalistic idea is in full display. (coughs) And we're going to see how the Pharisees got to this conclusion how an accidental Pharisee will share in that, how someone who is kind of on that mindset kind of would view that. And we're going to look at Jesus' response to the Pharisees in the midst of it. Um, because we, we harp on the Pharisees. We give them such a hard time say, why are you this way? Why are you such a legalist? But then all of a sudden we start to unpack it and we start to put it into our terms. It's like, huh, I, I get it. I understand how you got there. Um, so I'm, this is going to be fun. I, as I say every week, it seems like a downer. Don't be a Pharisee. It's like I'm, I'm insinuating that you're already there. I'm not. I'm just giving you the safeguards to make sure you don't end up in that camp because we want you to be the best. We want you to be everything Jesus has called you to be. And something really cool, as Michelle said, we're so excited this morning for the first time in a very long time. Redverse is on their own. Darren is preaching, Mitch is doing worship, they are not streaming any part of this service. Um, It was something that we learned about from another church that has lots of campuses. They said this was something they found lots of benefit in. And so we are empowering that group to once a month not be plugged in here, but to do their own thing. They're not really doing their own thing. He's still preaching the same message, but they're getting the Darren flavor of it. So... I don't know. Maybe that excites you. Maybe that's like, <laughs> they can have the dare. I don't know. Anyways, we love Darren. Um, anyways, so legalism. So we're going to look at two stories. We're going to look at the story of Mark 2 and Mark 3. They're kind of right behind each other. And these are stories that we've probably heard in the past. And like I said, we're going to unpack it, why the Pharisees got to where they are and what Jesus' response was. So here we go. Starting in Mark 2, starting in verse 28. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking heads of grain off to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, Haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he, was, when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abiathar was high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread 
that only the priests were allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was, not, was made to meet the needs of the people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So in this story, the, fair, the disciples and Jesus are walking through a field. They're breaking off. They're eating the seeds off the wheat. And the Pharisees fly off. They're harvesting. They're, ah, they're not supposed to do that on this day. It's like, what? How did you get there? How did you go from grabbing a snack off the wheat stock to they're harvesting? Ah! You know, like, like, come on, guys. Take a chill pill. Honestly. Um, anyways, so that's the first story. It, like, again... We just rag on the Pharisees. You guys are overreacting. Get over yourself. Second story, Mark 3. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. Okay, Pharisees have seen what he does on the Sabbath. He's bad on the Sabbath. They're watching him very closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. That's quite a stretch. Okay. So Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. They turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this the day to save a life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. And they looked around, he looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. And he said to the man, hold out your hand. And the man held out his hand, and it was restored. Again, why are they freaking out about Jesus doing good on the Sabbath? Is it not good to help someone who is sick? Is it not good for some, to help someone who is hurting? Is it not good to... Well, before we rag on the Pharisees, let's take a look at what they are doing. What the Pharisees are doing in this story is they, they know the law. So we look at the first story with the wheat. The law says, according to the Moses, that you are not allowed to harvest on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do any work. And, and so the problem that the Pharisees had was when they look at the law, it says don't do any work. It doesn't actually say don't harvest. It doesn't, it's pretty vague. It just says don't work. And so the scholars and the Pharisees took years upon years, different guys debating different sides, and they tried to clarify what it means to not work on the Sabbath. Because the concern is, they're not trying to be buzzkills. They're not trying to be party poopers. What they're trying to do is protect the people that they're teaching from breaking the law. If the law says don't work, and we want to honor God, and we want to honor what he's commanded, then we've got to figure out what it actually means to not work so we don't break that law. And when we harp on the Pharisees about, oh, you're so silly, the church has done the very same thing very early on. So, for example, <laughs> drunkenness, right? The Bible says that you are not to get drunk. So it's a precautionary safeguard to make sure that nobody breaks that and dishonors God by getting drunk. What have we often taught in the past? Don't drink. Just, just, just don't, don't drink any alcohol at all. Well, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the rule is. The law says don't get drunk. It doesn't say don't drink. 
But in our concern for everybody, for our concern of not breaking that law, we just take it, you know, if the floor is the law, then we take that extra step and like, well, just, just stay away from all, all alcohol and then you won't, you won't get too close to breaking that. The Pharisees did the same thing with work. They did all of this work. They did all these debates, the years upon years upon years, about dissecting the law and what Moses had taught, trying to figure out what it meant to not work. And they came to two conclusions. One is you don't harvest. Now, all of us farmers, you can appreciate this. Harvest is not an enjoyable activity. Harvest is a lot of work. A lot can go wrong in harvest, right? So we get the fact that this is something that if we can't work on the day, harvest is something that shouldn't happen. The other thing that they concluded is that doctors couldn't practice medicine. Again, makes sense that practicing medicine would be considered work. And so the safeguard is you can't do these things. And so what the Pharisees are doing in this scenario is plucking grains of head is a lot like harvest. So they freak out. Oh, they're harvesting. Eh, Chill out a little bit here. And then even for Jesus, for healing somebody, helping someone who is sick, they're freaking out because they're saying, well, if a doctor can't heal on the Sabbath, if a doctor can't help somebody on the Sabbath, why should Jesus be able to help somebody on the Sabbath? Why should he be able to heal? So this is the fuel of their, this is well-meaning, this is actually in response, trying to protect the people. (coughs) And like I said, we we do the same thing. We do this idea of, um, don't get drunk, don't drink. Uh, the other one that has come up a lot lately, uh, 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 says, just a sec, I didn't put it up on the slides, so I, you just have to trust me that I'm reading it properly. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 18, run from sexual sin. No other sin is so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Do not, you do not belong to yourself, for God bought you for a price, so you must honor God with your body. So what is the teaching in that? Stay away from sexual sin, because it is a sin against your body, and your body is not your own. Your body belongs to, to God. But we don't, there have been lots of people in the recent days that have taken that verse and actually applied it to something else. So on one hand, I've heard that passage uh, quoted against getting tattoos, right? You wouldn't graffiti the house of God. You wouldn't graffiti your church, so you shouldn't graffiti your body. Another argument is that you should work out. You know, you don't let the house of God fall apart and fall into shambles. So why would you let the temple of the Holy Spirit fall into shambles? You should take care of your body and The other one is that Christians should always be very well-dressed and formal because you want to present, in the same way we want our churches to be nice places and always look the best, that Christians should always be well-dressed and hair short, and which is funny because Jesus got a pass for having long hair, but guys have to have... Anyways, not getting into that. 
problem. And, and not that any of those things are bad things, right? We should be taking care of our bodies. We sh- you know, Bible does say we shouldn't be overeaters. So that's, you know, we can see how that is connected. We should, you know, tattoos, that's your thing. But the reality is, is that what that, ver- what that passage is actually talking about isn't health, isn't tattoos, and isn't being well-dressed. What's it talking about? It's talking about sexual sin. And the problem is, is that what we do, what a Pharisee will do is take the word of God and draw implications from it. So the law teaches, don't get drunk. So we're going to teach, don't drink. The law says, treat your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, stay away from sexual sin. But, you know, your temple, there's lots of implications for your temple. So you should, you know. Here's another one for all of you. Long-time church attenders, this is going to make you twitch a little bit. Can anyone tell me where in Scripture it tells you you have to read the Bible every day? Anybody? Anyone got that verse reference off the top of your head? I'll save you some time. It's not there. Don't bother trying to Google it. What does Scripture does teach? Scripture does teach us that we should meditate on God's Word every day. I can tell you that reference. Scripture tells us that we should talk about God's Word as we walk along the path and as we have our lunch and as we do our work and we talk about it with our kids and talk about the Deuteronomy does tell us that. Paul tells us that we should have our mind and our hearts drenched in God's Word, that it should be formative and just change everything about us. But at no point does Scripture ever say that you need to read it every day. It's an easy implication to draw, and let me tell you, this is a practice that I will continue to encourage. All the, but the problem is, is that a fa- what a Pharisee will do is they will take the implications of Scripture and teach it as if it has the same weight as the law. And this is the problem. Because what happens is, is that if I stand up and say, you have to read the Bible every single day, and I teach it with the same authority as Scripture itself, and I look down on everyone who doesn't, uh-oh, now we've crossed the line we're not supposed to be crossing. Again, it's a great practice. Again, I am going to stand up here every single week and tell you that you probably should read God's Word every single day because it, is a great, it has great benefits for you. But it's not actually a command of God. And so if you are here and you don't read God's Word every day, guess what? You're in luck. You're not actually doing anything wrong but we can't teach the implications of scripture with the same weight as scripture (coughs) scripture itself and this is what has happened in the church this is what has happened in in our faith this is what has happened with someone who would be an accidental pharisee is they have guilt tripped people who have (coughs) who have not met this implied standard even though it's not really there. And so the question is, is what's Jesus' response? If the Pharisees are flying off the handle about, you know, having a snack, they're flying off the handle. And so we got to come back to the Pharisees. I'm going to defend them just one more time. If the law is not to harvest and the law is not to heal, from from the Pharisees' perspective, the question is, why couldn't you wait? Right? We don't know what time of the day the disciples were walking through the field picking the heads of grain. But if they would have waited a couple hours till the end of Sabbath, they probably wouldn't have starved. 
They probably would have been okay to wait a couple more hours and start eating it. Because Sabbath, for the Jews, was sundown to sundown. Right? So you actually slept for half of Sabbath. So couldn't have you just waited till the sun went down before you started having your little snack? Couldn't Jesus have waited just a couple more hours to heal the guy's hand? Why did he have to do it at that exact moment in the middle of Sabbath when the law clearly teaches that you can't do any work on the Sabbath? Why? Because Jesus likes to make a point. He doesn't shy away from making a point. Because here's what the other thing the law says. The law says that if your donkey falls in a hole on the Sabbath, you're allowed to pick it out. So why in the world, in the law, are you allowed to help your donkey, but you can't help a person? Sorry, neighbor. You've got to wait till sundown. I'm going to get you out of the hole. Like... Sorry, neighbor, you're sick. Sorry, you're hungry. Sorry, the donkeys, I can help. But not, and this is Jesus' response. Jesus said, actually, I don't value law. I don't value sacrifice. I actually value mercy above all else. Hosea 6.6 6 says that, God says that I would follow in the law and sacrifice. I do not desire what I actually desire is for you to extend Mercy. Jesus actually looks at the Pharisees and says, actually, mercy trumps everything. Because the one thing that Jesus was teaching was that the law and these implications and these extra teachings were not able to save. But what is able to save? Mercy is able to save. Mercy washes over a multitude of wrongs, perceived or otherwise. Mercy, mercy trumps everything. And so even though the disciples, were they doing something wrong? Not for debate, but Jesus is actually more concerned about them in that moment than he is about the law. Jesus is actually more concerned about the person with the deformed hand and making sure that they can live the life they're meant to live. Because if he waited a couple hours, he might not have found the guy again. So he extends mercy to this guy with a deformed hand who has been robbed of the life he is meant to have. And he says, here, here's mercy. And mercy drives a Pharisee crazy. Because we have standards and we want people to meet those standards. And if they don't meet the standard, then instead of showing mercy, we come down on them. But we don't come down on everybody. See, we're good with extending mercy with someone overseas that we'll never meet. Or we're good with extending mercy to someone who doesn't know Jesus because they don't know any better. But somebody who knows better, oh, we're going to come down on them. We're going to pummel them because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And what we often forget in the midst of all of this, when we read in Scripture that Jesus hung out with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors, these weren't people who didn't know any better. All of these people that Jesus hung out with were Jewish. They all grew up in the tabernacle. They all grew up here in the Word. And in a sense, they were all people who should know better. They're all people, and this is why the Pharisees were so quick to write them off. Because they are all people who should know better, and they're not acting the way they're supposed to act, and Jesus didn't care. Jesus actually was quick to extend mercy to people who should know better because he knew that mercy was going to be the thing that was going to turn things around. Not a harsh word, not a condescending comment, not a blatant rebuke, but love 
grace and mercy. So the question is, as we wrap up, does that mean that we just need to get rid of all the implications? Like, get rid of all those safeguards. The law is all we have. This is all we need to... No! Back to the drunkenness thing. If you know that you are prone, after one drink, to continue to drink, you can't stop, then what is a good rule of thumb for you? Don't have the first drink. Then you won't go down that slippery slope. If you've read 1 Corinthians six eighteen and read that, that my body's a temple and you felt convicted that you needed to take care of your body because you need to take care of it the same way you take care of the church, then that's between you and God. And this is what Paul says in Romans 14, 22. In Romans 14, the people are fighting about food sacrifice to idols. And some say you should eat food sacrificed to idols because idols aren't real and it doesn't matter. And the other group's saying, no, it's an affront to God. We need to stay away from all meat. They've all become vegetarians. Sucks to be you guys because I like meat. Um, and so what Paul says to these guys is that you're both wrong because you're both looking at each other. You're both fighting. You're both getting into each other's faces. And Paul says this. He says, you may believe there's nothing wrong with what you are doing but keep it between yourself and God. Keep it between you and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. So if you have drawn the implication that you don't want to get drunk and so you're just not going to drink, that's fine. That's between you and God, but do not expect everyone else to hold to the same standard that you're holding. If you are one of these people that love to read the Bible four times a day because you feel that that is what God has called you to do. Good on you. You keep doing that. I hope everyone gets to that point. But that's not, do not look down on anybody who doesn't hold that standard. What God has impressed upon you, what God has taught you through his word, most of the time, if you've drawn anything that is beyond the actual teaching of itself, keep between you and God. Now, obviously, there's times where there's going to be, <laughs> we still have to hold the line about what is the law. We're still going to stand up here and say you shouldn't get drunk because that's what the Bible teaches, and you're going to stand on that because that is the solid word of God is not changing. I'm still going to teach against sexual immorality because you're still a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that is the one thing that violates that temple teaching. But I'm not going to stand up here and say that everybody needs to lose 50 pounds in the next month because of 1 Corinthians 6, because it's simply not there. So I close with this. Who in your life do you need to show mercy to? Is there somebody in your life that has not held to this standard that you have held in your life and you have Somebody who you think should know better? Is there somebody that you have made a comment to? Is there somebody that you just look down on unintentionally? I don't think we intentionally, you know, think we're so much better than everybody else, you know. But is there somebody who you believe should know better and you have made it a point to make sure they know it? 
Because the reality is, is that that is not the way Jesus acted. Jesus embraced the people who should know better. People, Jesus embraced the people who were struggling, who were going through stuff. Because the reality is, is unlike Jesus, we don't have all the information. We don't know why people are struggling. We don't know why people can't hold the standard. We don't know why people are just living, aren't living to the standard you think they should live to. So instead of coming down on them having, and derating them because they are not living up to this perceived standard, we actually come alongside them with mercy and love and say, how can I encourage you? How can I help you? How can I walk with you? What is God teaching you in this time? Who do you need to show mercy to? And for a Pharisee, this is the hardest question to ask because we are so quick. And I fall in this camp. We're so quick to criticize and not so quick to have show mercy. I'm going to worship you to come on up. I'm going to pray. Everyone bow your heads as we're praying. Jesus, I thank you. <laughs> you have such a high standard for us. And often we look at the standard as something that we need to do. Something that needs to be accomplished in order to meet the standard. But actually your standard is the level at which we are called to love people. The standard at which we are called to show grace. And this morning, the standard at which we are called to show mercy. And so God, I pray for help in those times that we're dealing with somebody that it we struggle to show mercy to. God, help us when we are interacting with somebody that we feel should know better as not acting the way we think they should be acting. And instead of making a comment or coming down on them, derailing their progress, we extend a hand and just show mercy to them the way that you would show mercy to them. Father, forgive us for the ways that we tend to align ourselves with the Pharisee kind of thinking. But God, never cease to call us to a higher standard. Never cease to call us to continue to grow. Never cease to call us to get better and to be refined by the refiner's fire. To never stop being perfected by your word and by your spirit. But teach us what it means that what you have called us to keep us be keep between you and me. Father, I pray for everyone in in-house and online that maybe is needing a touch of mercy. God, I pray that this morning they experience your mercy. That your mercy would wash over them with a great abundance. Fill our hearts to overflowing. We love you. Give you all our praise and thanks. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen.